Ladies and gentlemen, people of all gender expressions, thank you for checking out the North Bank Media Podcast. I am your host, Patrick Strevens. Joining me on the show this morning was Sadell Merrigan. She's a harm reduction and substance use researcher in Victoria, BC. That's at the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. So, you know, I've wanted to have her on the show for quite some time, but we, we, we wanted to make sure that we were centering the discussion on a certain issue. And uh, this is an issue that's very fascinating to me, and it's an issue in which she is a um, an expert, frankly, um, substance abuse and addiction. So, you know, she rolled out a lot of good information as far as her background in it, um, you know, the policy problems surrounding it, the, the systemic and sort of multiple levels of the problem. And, and addiction, you know, like the COVID-19 pandemic, for instance, or like racism, which I've talked about on this show as well, they're, they're gigantic problems. They seem to be built into the human being. And rather than look for some kind of solution, we just, we have to understand the problems more broadly. And she did a great job of laying out her background and, and her authority on the, on the subject, but also really delving into what solutions might look like um, for, for this problem of addiction and substance use. So I really enjoyed this one. I would say, um, toward the middle and end of the conversation, we really started jiving. So it is worth listening to this entire thing. So please enjoy this conversation with Sadell Merrigan. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, 13 is too many. <laughs> well, well, okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have more than I deserve. Actually, the, view, the views are slowly going up, which is kind of cool to see. That's sweet. You were saying that there was somebody from like Turkey or something? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. neat. Yeah. It's, that's really cool. I wonder how they got connected. I don't know. And the, I, the website that I post on, like the server has like an analytics page and you can see a map of the world where you're getting downloads. And like yeah. mo most of them is Edmonton, but then like there's like a little spot in Nigeria. There's like a little spot like down south in Oregon. Mm -hmm. You just wonder how it's how it's doing that. I wish that it gave like the analytics are really interesting in terms of just like where it's happening and like where like you yeah. know somebody signing in from. But it'd be really cool to see like the you know the steps that it took to get them to that point. It's true. You know? I wish that that could be included. How do Yeah, maybe I don't know. It's neat because it's a fairly new platform that I'm using, so they're building, they're making it more user-friendly as they go so maybe some feedback there would be good because hmm. you want to know who these people are and you know on like apple podcasts and all that there's no user feedback there's no comment section so you don't really know no but, no yeah so it's a it's been a fun adventure so far so i thank you for being a part of it yeah thank you for a second time <laughs> <laughs> so sadel thank you for joining me this morning it's great to see you mm -hmm, you too yeah thanks for having me my pleasure. I just, I guess the first thing that I wanted to get out of the way was just, you were, have been pretty influential on me um, doing this show as I'm doing it now. You know, the, the, the episode I did with Brittany Ohi, um, mm -hmm. it's kind of become lore in this podcast. I mean, between me and myself really, but it, it was a watershed moment because I, I went about it uh, one way and, and you listened to that episode and you said, you know, I know you, I know you're not gaslighting. I know you're not being confrontational here, but you didn't maybe make a space for, um, conversation. You just, you kind of sounded like you needed to be convinced and that clicked in my head and it was like, ah, 
That's not my brand. I'm not here to host a political debate. I'm just here to open the door and let people speak. And even if I don't agree on some level, who's who, who am I to pass the moral judgment here? So mm. I wanted to thank you, I guess, first for just kind of, as you have done in the past, just kind of telling me where I was straying from the path. And, uh, you know, it got me got me thinking differently about this show. Uh, well, that's, well, yeah, it's nice to hear. I think that says <laughs> to a certain degree, um, you know, some information or that that's highlighting some information about who I am as a person, <laughs> you sure, sure, know, sure. but, uh, but also, yeah, I'm glad it was well received. Like okay. it's, um, it's nice to, uh, to hear that. Right on. Well, like I say, it's, it's, and it, but it, and it's felt right ever since then, because then I was like, Oh, I, I don't have to exhaust myself trying to think about how I feel and think mm. of and pass the judgment on every damn thing that I hear. I can just let it, let them tease it out as long as they need to. And then, yeah. you know, the idea just presents themselves to the listener, which I'm kind of yeah. a, a conduit for the listener. I think just, just let that info pass through me out into, yeah. the, you know, so. Yeah, fair enough. And and that was a, like, that was a great episode. Like I found that really interesting, you mm. know, like my, my, my lens going into that was, um, you know, I may be in that seat, you know, in Brittany's seat. Mm. And so, um, I was looking at it from a different way, but I listened to it more than once and the conversation was super rich and she is so knowledgeable mm-hmm. that, um, you know, it was, it was a joy to listen to, you know, outside of that. Glad to hear it. Yeah. It's definitely been, mm-hmm. I've had people come a few people say, I listened to that episode. Like that's like the one that seems to, it really shook, shook some people, I think a little bit, or at least, okay, this is what that style of thinking and that progressive outlook, this is what that looks like fully explained. Mm-hmm. take it for mm-hmm. what take it for what it is yeah it's really relevant right now right and more and more every day somehow it seems yeah you know so well maybe just for the so for the listeners like you know you grew up in Edmonton but you've since moved out to Victoria and you're you're working I guess it's a it's a well you you tell me you tell me what the name of this institute is that you've picked up work at yeah so um I moved out to Victoria you know about almost four years ago. And I'm, and originally while it, why I moved out was to do my master's in public health. And, um, from that program, I was connected to a researcher out of the organization that I'm working at now. And it's called the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. Hmm. And essentially, um, I'm what a person would call like a harm reduction and substance use researcher. And so right now I'm working with, you know, that, that scientist, that researcher that I was connected to in my, in my program mm-hmm. um, and other experts in their fields where the goal is to create um, this actionable evidence where, which is all related and, and ties back to how do we support people who are using substances mm-hmm. and how do we reduce the harms associated with those? Okay. So that's mm-hmm. neat. And is that, I think I might've asked you this once before, but now is this a government funded, like, is this an, it's a research Institute. So just, I'm just curious where, how they get their funding and, and how they get their kind of mandates too. Yeah. So depending on the project and depending who is involved, there's different sources of funding. Okay. Um, so some of the researchers are going to be applying for grants. There's a lot of grants that are 
um, distributed uh, through the federal government, but mm-hmm. also those grants are coming from like local initiatives, you know, Victoria-based or local mm-hmm. um, government um, within the city, um, but also at like provincial level too. And so the projects that at least I've been working on, um, we've been tasked by the provincial government, you know, the Ministry of Health okay. uh, out here in BC to look into something, something they're sure. interested in, something that's relevant to them right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so recently uh, it was how COVID has affected right. um, drug user organizing, for example, um, mm. in, in the province. So a group of people who use drugs, sure. um, how, how they've been able to come together and organize to support uh, other people who use drugs in, the, in their communities. Interesting. So, um, yeah, yeah, it is really interesting. And something that I, I really value in the work that I'm doing and with the people that I'm working with is that there's this really heavy emphasis on all of the different like systemic impacts. Sure on substance use and the harms associated. So we're looking at these um, social, political, um, psychological, economic factors that mm-hmm. impact, you know, these, these, these issues. Right on. So, right. Mm-hmm. And that's an important distinction, right? It's not like you're necessarily looking at the biology or the, you know, the, the scientific, you know, roots of it. You're looking at more social factors, more macro Although you said psychological, so but I, I guess I'm just trying to draw a line there for myself. It's like, you're, maybe it seems like you're looking for ways that you could directly impact policy to make a change. Yeah, yeah. And that's really what we're saying about that actionable evidence is that mm. we're, we're looking to to make change in, in whatever way we can. And okay. ultimately, it's to, you know, to improve health for mm. people who use, who use substances. And that's, you know, illicit and licit substances. So, okay. Oh, interesting. Anything from alcohol and tobacco, right, mm. all the way to opioids. Okay. Um, and so it's it's any type of drug, really, or substances. And I use them interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, when I say drugs, I do include alcohol. Okay. Um, yeah. And so we hope to, like, inspire change for either, you know, direct direct services, mm-hmm. you know, from a service provider to somebody who's access, accessing service. Mm-hmm. Um, but also on policy levels and to provide some additional information for people who are making decisions. Right on. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's fact finding and it's, it's, it sounds like a pretty important little arm of, of what's going on. It seems so, because I think there's a public perception problem maybe with substance use in Canada, right? It's, it's criminalized for the most part. Oh, yeah. 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 And there's the, the way that, um, and I don't want to see the general public, but the way that people or a person looks at um, substances and it's really going to impact the way that, you know, our, our policies, our legislation, um, our services, our programs are, are created, right? And so if, if somebody's looking at uh, drug use, and this this goes from recreational drug use, right, sure. all the way to like problematic, you know, like it's it's harming a person, it's harming like mm-hmm. society to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, if if we're looking at people who use drugs and substances as a moral deficiency, you mm-hmm. know, sure. somebody who, 
you know, the, the substance use or the, the problematic substance use is, is a result of this like moral weakness, right? And uh, like recovery is achieved by just willpower, you know, you just got to choose <laughs> to do it, right? you know, like if, if that was the case, then criminalization might have worked, right? but it's not, right? Like there were, were over a hundred years of having this model where we've criminalized drugs and created this, you know, a, a moral judgment mm. on drug use mm -hmm. and we're failing, you know, as a society to manage the drug problem, you know? I think about this when it comes to alcohol. Sure. So, you know, more often than than any other substance, because alcohol causes more. It, it costs our society more than any substance. However, it is legal. Right. So, the, the disconnect is just so obvious there to me. And I've been doing a lot of just personal, like, interest reading on how our drug laws like came about okay. and <laughs> just how outdated and how harmful they were as they were created. But we never went back to the drawing board. We just mm. kind of like tweaked it, you know, <laughs> bit by bit sure. and with hopes uh, that the original, you know, concept was going to do its job. Mm -hmm. um, but we're looking now at these different models and uh, when it comes to substance use and how we how we are going to address it mm -hmm. um, as a society, and then also to support people who are using drugs, um, we're looking to other communities, other jurisdictions, other countries, right? Who are mm -hmm. we're all so many countries are dealing with the same issues when it mm -hmm. comes to substance use, um, like harms and the cost mm -hmm. to the society, um, and we could. We could learn so much by how other countries are managing their problems. Sure. And, you know, the perfect example of this, and we've talked about this before, but the perfect example of this is um, Portugal. Mm -hmm. So Portugal was in the late 1990s, and I, I don't know the history that well, but around that time, they were experiencing, um, they, they had an epidemic, like they had issues related to opioids mm. and it was costing their society a lot. And what they did was they came together. Well, the government tasked a group to come together mm. to say, how do we address this? You know, this is a problem. Um, and it's, and it's significant. And our model currently is not working. What can we do? Is there an innovative way to address this issue? Mm. And what the group recommended was to end criminalization. Of, of substances and to end the the criminality associated with possession of drugs and so mm. but so when somebody um comes into contact with like enforcement like police okay and they have these substances no matter what they are mm -hmm. and they now have an opportunity it's not seen as like punitive they have an opportunity to engage with treatment services to get reintegrated on a social level, they're giving opportunities to manage, you know, their their possible problematic substance use. And if it's not a problem, if it's just recreational use, then they just confiscate the drugs and say, okay, go on. <laughs> you know, it's it's sure. a really it's a really like person-centered health-based model. Hmm. Whereas ours is punitive. It is there's harsh punishment, right? Hmm. For for possession and use. Yeah. And this is a health issue. You know, and it's not just individual health, it's broader level health and it impacts all of us.
you know? Well, it does. I find that so fascinating how, you know, and I wonder where that model comes from. That sort of, like you said, putting it, making addiction, a moral weakness, you know, making it a moral judgment. Like, do you have a sense of where that came from? Like, was that, was that, or was that a means of making policy to control certain populations by criminalizing a certain activity or, you know, because all, I mean, there's plenty of alcoholics who, <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Maybe do you have an idea of, of why making addiction a moral weakness serves? Like, who does that serve? You know, if I'm looking at Canada and Canada's drug laws, mm -hmm. you know, they came about as a result of anti-Asian sentiments. Mm. And it was an attack on opium. Ah. And opium was associated with uh, Chinese-Canadian men that use was, um, was predominantly, you know, seen as a, a, um, as a thing that, you know, Chinese-Canadian men um, engaged in. Mm. And so initially I see it as it's a, it's a racial issue, right? It's a, and it is a means of controlling mm -hmm. the, the, the work, the labor force, you know, and, but, it, but then I, I think about it further to further than that. And I'm like, okay, is that a white supremacy issue? <laughs> um, and, and then I think about how, you know, other prohibition, um, like the prohibition era in the States, there were a lot of Christian um, foundations, associations uh, sure. that were calling for prohibition. And so I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but okay. I see it as having some like racial, potentially some gender mm. um, and class sure. like, intersections. And well, um, it's complicated though. It's like substance use, I think, we have these different theories and moral theory is one of them. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's also, you know, the disease theory that, you know, this is something that originates in the brain and you can't control it. It's mm -hmm. just, that's how your brain is, you know? And so we need to treat it as such. Okay. And, but those are really reductionist theories, right? This is, this is so much bigger. And over time we've learned that, okay, sure. There might be part of that, you know, brain dysfunction mm. that, that contributes to a substance use issue. But there's also this like learning and behavioral like context that it emerges, mm. you know, within. And there's also the like sociocultural theories that, you know, expands on those to, to accept that there are environmental, in, environmental factors. Sure. That, that impact use. And, you know, that is those different theories are just bits and pieces of, of what is happening and what we know today. Right. Um, and so what we know today is that there are, if we're looking at substance use as a health issue, okay, mm. then we know today that our health is impacted by a broad range of these economic, social, personal, and environmental factors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that affects, you know, people individually, but also on a group level. 
And so we can see these differences okay. between groups. And so some of those like main determinants of health are things like, you know, income. Like we know that people um, in Canada um, and elsewhere, but we know that Canadians with higher income just generally have better health. Um, people, um, other determinants of health um, are related to like employment and sure. the conditions that somebody's working in. Um, a level of education, our, our physical environments, like where we live, our communities, um, how much social support that we have. Um, we there are also the the healthy behaviors that we think or we used to think. You know, when I was younger, I really did think that to be healthy, you just had to eat well, mm. you know, and and exercise. And it, it was really like it seems so simple, right? right? But there are so many other factors, including the ones I just mentioned, but mm -hmm. are there are so many things outside of healthcare and individual health that are impacting health. And so anyways, the, the list goes on. There's so many other determinants of health, you know, like our gender, our culture, um, sure. uh, race, our, and then there is that genetic component for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and then also just access to health services. So all these things impact our health. And so if we're looking at substance use as a health issue, which mm -hmm. it is, you know, and our policies and our, our um, the way that we're managing substance use, I think it's really clear, mm. you know, in the way that our healthcare has taken on substance use. And there's ministries now that are that are addressing the issue within a health framework. Okay. Um, we now know it is a health issue, um, but within those um, different factors, there are these social determinants. So it's the right. where where a person sits in the in their in their place in society where sure. they sit. Um, and it, it does still include income and education and employment, but things, it also includes things like being discriminated against mm. and racism mm. and historical trauma. Sure. And so that's particularly important for, um, or relevant to groups like the LGBTQ, um, community, mm. um, racialized groups, including indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. so, so anyways, that's interesting. Yeah. So if mm -hmm. we, if we accept that model of uh, oppression, marginalization. Are, are you saying that in some of those, like last week I was talking to somebody about it and I said, you know, some intersections are more dangerous than others. You know, there's, does that seem relevant? Does that seem logical <laughs> for one thing? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so and sorry, go ahead. Just to ask. So then are you saying then that in some of those intersections, more marginalized, more harmful places to be, you're seeing higher rates of addiction? Yes, absolutely. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And so, you know, if we're looking at um, one of those determinants of health, okay, yeah. are your a childhood experience. Sure. And I'm going to probably give, you know, a couple examples, but I just want to make it really clear that the examples that I give are kind of like a compilation of different people that I've worked with over the okay. years and they sure. reflect no one person. Mm. And so if there is any, um, if it sounds like it's somebody that somebody else may have worked with, it's right. just purely coincidence. So Sam, so, if, Sam, if you're listening, we're not talking about you. Sometimes he says, I know yeah. you're talking about me. I like, ah, wasn't you. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> um, so if somebody has experienced um, trauma as a child and say that was, some form of physical or sexual abuse, right. then that, that group say they were also, um, sorry, I'm trying to give like a good example here of how those, those, um, those things impact mm -hmm. 
um, or I kind of, they kind of have a cumulative uh, effect. Sure. Right. They kind of build on each other Mm -hmm. and some of them are more impactful than others. And so a child who experiences trauma may have been more likely to have come from a a family that is poor, a family that was poor was more likely to live in a neighborhood that did not have that social cohesion and was not necessarily safe. They didn't have access to healthy food Mm. because, you know, in lower income neighborhoods, we know that there's more like fast food options. There's not a lot of great grocery uh, chains. The easiest to access food um, and services are ones that are not necessarily the healthiest. Mm. Um, They may not have access to like meaningful activities, which we now know is, you know, a protective factor for substance use. Um, So the list goes on and on and on. And so all of these things compound to put put somebody at risk of of substance use. And yeah, that's, I find that very interesting because I've heard that old, I've heard that piece of information where it says like children that are raised in lower economic circumstances often don't turn out as intelligent, you know, because they don't have the same, whatever, stimulant or opportunities, even like different ways to go about that. But so it's, yeah. it seems to me like what, what you're starting to get towards like addiction and substance use quite often is filling a, a gap in someone's life, so to speak. It's, it's, there's, there's a, a sense of something or they're seeking something. Is that, is that accurate? You know, I've definitely heard that theory and it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that was finding a place of belonging within a group or um, if it, it wasn't just filling a void, it mm-hmm. was reducing pain. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's not just physical pain, right? Um, but, you know, emotional pain or... Um, and I also see substance use as something that just quiets the mind. Mm. And if your mind is full of distressing thoughts, mm-hmm. you know, of, mm-hmm. of trauma, of just a constant reminder of your circumstances, which are really challenging. You know, if you're living in poverty, if you're, if you're homeless and you're, you're experiencing or more likely to experience, you know, violence and you have to be on guard mm-hmm. um, because maybe you are use, using substances and you have to fear the police. And so you have sure. to use your, your, your substances in private and mm-hmm. um, like in the shadows. And so I see it as like an escape as well. And so if I'm, if I'm being honest, you know, when I, when I was in, university. Um, and I, I'm looking back at it. I didn't know that this was the case, but I, I was experiencing some really significant, um, like anxiety symptoms Okay, and they were contributing to, um, a certain level of depression too, but I didn't have that, that, um, I didn't have the words for it yet. I didn't understand it. Hmm. Um, hmm. and so when I started, uh, working with people in a mental health hospital and I started to get exposed sure. to the, um, what's it called? The, the DSM or diagnostic and statistical manual mm-hmm. where it outlines, you know, the criteria for having a substance use or sorry, a mental health disorder. Okay. When I started reading, you know, more into it, I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds very familiar. And <laughs> mind you, I think anybody could look at the DSM and say, that sounds familiar. 
but it was it was how much I was relating to to people with you know anxiety and, and depression right. um, that I, I started to see that my own use with um, alcohol when I was in undergrad was um, a coping mechanism because right. I was so socially anxious and uh. and today I have you know whether it's useful or not you know to me I see it as useful but I don't know if um, everybody feels that way but. I have the diagnosis of, of social anxiety. Mm. So, and I understand it better now. And so I, I don't have the, the need to cope in that way, but it was an opportunity for me to escape from this narrative that was continual mm. and distressing and sure. distracting, you know, in, in a, in a world where, you know, we, we are driven to build relationships and to connect with people and be social, you know, yep. to a certain degree. I'm an introvert. So uh-huh. Like my, my like threshold for social, like being social is low. Okay. But, um, me too. But yeah, yeah, you get it then. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, getting exposed to so many people, like my brain would just be on, it was high alert and I could not connect with people mm. because I was so distracted by my own thoughts. And, it was becoming an issue, but, and I know that people will say things along the lines of, you know, in college, you know, uh, yeah, I drank too much or um, <laughs> I was drinking, but for me, I saw it as a problem and it was very connected to my mental health. Mm-hmm. And that is really common, you know, people with um, substance use issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is hard to actually quantify, but it's estimated that between like 50 and 65 percent of those people like have a mental health condition and and so they're really closely connected and so you know it makes sense for me that it could be an escape it could be just an opportunity to just quiet the brain right um but it really says something to the effect that people use drugs for a reason right like there there is a logical you know pathway (laughs) Mm -hmm. for somebody to use drugs and then how it becomes um, an addiction and something that really affects the way that um, a person navigates, you know, through the world. Hmm. That's, yeah, that's right. There's, that's a great point. There's all, there's, there's always a reason, right? Like no one would just, I mean, even if, even right from like me going to the liquor store to buy six beer is like, there's obviously some reason, even subconsciously that I must be doing that, right? Like, so you'd say that use just doesn't happen for the sake of use? Right. No, no. People and it, and and when we're young, sometimes it's just experimentation, right? And so there's there's this True. spectrum of of substance use mm. that I kind of alluded to a little earlier, but there's there's this on the far end, there's the beneficial use. And so I drink coffee in the morning to get a little pep, you know, and <laughs> yes. and to get my day going, sure. you know. Um, and then also things like, you know, far- yeah, exactly. Some like pharmaceuticals for pain management, you know, um, in, in hospital or, or otherwise, sure. you know, cannabis as now being, um, a, an option for pain management mm-hmm. and, and, uh, to treat insomnia, you know, sure. there's that beneficial use. And then it kind of moves into this next category where it's casual. It's, it's not problematic. Um, and it's still like, it's not used as a in the same way where it's like there's a positive health, social, or like, I guess even spiritual, right? Mm, like sure. effect. 
but it's more like casual, it's recreational. Right. Um, and it has very minimal effects. It has minimal negative effects on your health, social life. Okay. Um, and then if we're moving even further along the spectrum, there's that problematic use. And that's when it starts to have some negative consequences okay. to a person um, physically, um, their family, their relationships in general, um, and also society. So this is where, you know, you start to see somebody who, uh, for example, someone's drinking heavily one night, mm. they get into a fight and they, they punch someone, they get arrested for assault, Sure. you know, like, the, but luckily, you know, they, they are able to, I don't know, somehow avoid like conviction or something, mm. but they get arrested for assault. And so like, that's the start of something like, oh, okay, that's a problem. Right. And then we go further along to chronic like dependence. And when you stop, you experience withdrawal okay. and um, it's, it's a habitual, you are, you are feeling um, uh, these like intense compulsions mm -hmm. to use. And it's really difficult to stop using at that point. And mm -hmm. um in a way, you know, it's temporary relief. And that's why the, the drug seeking behavior is continuous, right? Like it's continual, right. it's visual. Um, and yeah, so there's the spectrum of substance use that I think people can um, place themselves on. And I also think it moves, you know, your, your experience yep. of substance use. I think it, 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 it um, shifts over time. And depending on where you are in your life and what you have, I think that some people are more at risk of, of uh, developing, you know, uh, that problematic use or a substance use disorder to the degree that it is impacting their health or relationships, you sure. know, their finances and et cetera. Right. Uh, that's very useful to see it on a spectrum like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great resource that I found, um, this, uh, a spectrum like that. Mm -hmm. It was from a, it was from the health officers council of British Columbia. Um, and they had a really um, a good infographic on that, on that spectrum. If you're enjoying this conversation, please subscribe on YouTube and give us a like. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. And now, back to the conversation. Now, are you or have you ever spent a, a good amount of time with, with people who are heavily addicted to drugs? Like, in your research, are you, obviously, those are the people you're studying, so what... I'm just really curious about, have you had much one-on-one -on -one or direct interaction with someone who's heavily, in, you know, addicted to some, like something hard, opiates or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my career um, began when I did an internship program uh, in, in Edmonton through the U of A. And okay. It was an internship uh, program in psychology. And so I had an opportunity to work 12 months in a mental health and brain injury hospital. Mm. And that was my first opportunity to interact with people who um, either self-identified or had been diagnosed with mental health issues and, um, and also substance use issues. And so there was um, actually a concurrent disorders program, which is somebody who has a mental health issue and a substance use issue. Okay. Um, that's what a concurrent disorder is, I guess. And so, um, I was working one-on-one -on -one with patients. Um, and if I wasn't working one-on-one -on -one with them, I was running groups for, um, the people who were attending, mm. um, the hospital. And these were, the majority of them were voluntary programs. Um, okay. some of them 
some of them were were so unwell and and unable to take care of themselves anymore that they they were um, they were mandated to be there really or somebody else was making those decisions for them. Mm. Um, anyways. And so that's when I started having conversations and with people um, who were really struggling. And I started to notice, you know, those, um, those trends, those, those connecting factors, which were, which are now, I, as I understand it, the, the determinants of health, right. The social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was working a lot with people who um, were of like indigenous ancestry. I was right. working with a lot of people who came from poverty who had been, abused as children um, who would experience traumas on so many different levels and their pain was just so significant. And that really, that experience working in that hospital propelled my like whole career. And Mm. so I continued to work in settings where I would be um, either supporting directly, you know, um, people with substance use uh, issues and mental health issues um, or indirectly where I was working in, you know, one of these other fields that were, um, that can be considered a, a social determinant of health or, uh, um, a determinant of health. Okay. And so like I worked in, in housing, you know, a program that, that supported people with, um, who had been chronically homeless. Hmm. Um, I worked in youth, uh, addiction treatment, um, like inpatient and outpatient treatment. Hmm. And now, um, my my interaction with people who use drugs is really different um, in the sense that I'm not supporting them through like their goals, their treatment goals, mm. um, or their you know psychosocial goals, or you know life skills, or whatever it is that they needed that was supported by like a clinical team or a supportive like wraparound service team. Okay. But now I'm working with them in the sense that I am trying to understand their experiences um, as service users or as the people who are directly impacted by policy and services that are supposed to help them. But over, you know, it's become quite clear that the people making the decisions, they haven't been engaging with those people who are directly supposed to access and benefit from those decisions and those programs and services. Mm. And so there's been a shift in the way that we work with, um, you know, as a society, we work with people who use drugs to engage them in that conversation um, to say, you know, is this working? What do you think about this? And it's, it's, they're, they're trying to move towards this model of like partnership as opposed to just like consulting Mm. um, after decisions have been made, but really involve them from, you know, right from the the concept all the way to the implementation. Um, And so part of the, some of the projects that I work on right now, the majority of them right now um, are considered participatory research projects where Mm. we engage with people who are using these services um, or, you know, people who use drugs in, in this case. And we, we, engage them in the entire research process. Mm-hmm. We, um, we talked to them about, um, so for example, we recently did an evaluation of a, of a BC um, led initiative, a ministry of health initiative. Mm-hmm. And we were, um, we engaged them with like the design of the project 
all the way to the evaluation of the pro, uh, project in the end okay. and how we're going to monitor it from sure. now on. Yeah. Interesting. So do you then have a sense of uh, commonalities? I mean, it sounds like you probably answered this already, but like, are you seeing things that are just like, if we could just change this, we would, we would alleviate this much, you know, mm. substance use problem. Like, is there, is there just like some glaring issues that maybe almost frustrate you, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the biggest ones is, is criminalization. Um, the way that that impacts, um, a person's self image ah. and the way that that image, you know, affects the way that they engage with services, mm. the way that that affects their substance use in turn, you know, criminalization has caused so many harms um, and deaths, you know, and our drug laws are just so ineffective. And so the criminalization has, led to this black market, like the dark market, right? Of accessing drugs Mm -hmm. that are tainted. They're toxic, you know, where people wouldn't be dying if they were accessing pure drugs, you know? So it seems so simple. Like if that's a, if that's a problem, Mm -hmm. why not provide them with a pure medical grade, uh, drug and and also this has been seen to be effective you know in other countries also in canada we like we had a heroin assistant treatment program mm. um in vancouver and it it lost funding at some point you know but so yes yeah, so criminalization and the impact that that has on um an acceptance of sure. harm reduction strategies which includes safe supply mm. um also poverty is a big one okay um, and, and there are other, you know, there's other risk factors, right. um, but those are two glaringly obvious ones and also trauma. Okay. Um, somebody who have, who has experienced a really painful, um, either it was one event or it was ongoing, sure. um, as a, ch- as children, as children or as youth. And I think that that's the... For me, on a, like a personal level, I think that is the most challenging um, aspect of, of substance use is that right now we're treating people as a reactive measure, ah, right? Mm-hmm, they have mm-hmm. substance use issues now, but we could prevent them from happening if the funding was diverted into these social supports sure into the the different determinants of health like employment mm. right um, income housing um, access to health services like if we if we did this in a more preventative way mm-hmm. and supported children um, and address this from a young young age sure. you know the families that have those children you know more at risk of, of you know trauma and trauma doesn't have to be these big events like it could be, it could be as a result of parents being really financially stressed. Sure. You know, um, the way that a child, you know, internalizes that is traumatic. And if we shifted that model, I, I could see that making a, a really significant difference. Interesting. Yeah, it's like a, a healthy society wouldn't wouldn't use drugs 
you know, yeah. in some ways. Yeah, and mind you, you know what? I, I, I'm not sure if that's true. I think that substance use is it's always it's always been around, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have a we have a, a long-standing history of, of um, drug use, and the availability of and access to to substances. Um, sure, that's going to affect you know if somebody can can um, can use, but I wonder if all of those other things were addressed and. And every other, one of those things was um, uh, people were supported in in uh, improving their quality of life as a whole outside mm. of substance use. Would they need to escape? Would mm. they feel like there's a void to fill? Sure. Would they feel like they're you know in my case would they feel like they need to quell that that mental um, chatter mm-hmm. you know that's mm-hmm. ongoing? And so. You know, maybe I could have, I would have never gone to the point where I noticed that association between alcohol and uh, coping, you mm-hmm. know, for anxiety and social settings, had I been more aware of, sub, uh, sorry, of mental health sure. and anxiety, if that had been a more normalized conversation, I would have been able to access health um, services earlier as a youth when looking back at it, it was very clear that there was something um, that was going awry, you know, there was something off, mm-hmm. but... But also, you know, that speaks to like a, a generational thing too, right? Like we, you and I have grown up in a context where mental health is more common to talk about. Yep. Like it is, it is a safer place to talk about mental health and it's not as stigmatizing, but stigma is alive and well. And it makes it even difficult <laughs> to talk on this podcast mm-hmm. about that. Hmm. And, and the stigma and the discrimination that comes from, um, uh, as a result of, of sorry, the stigma and the discrimination that comes as a result of stigma, it, it really impacts the way that people feel about themselves and once yeah. again, like access to services, you know, and and it affects the way that, you know, service providers um, interact with people, you know, and mm-hmm. it's it's just incredible that this is a really complicated right. issue and it is going to require, you know, the input from a lot of different um, experts sure. and and experts in the in their own lives. So I'm talking with people people who use drugs. Mm. They need to be engaged. They need yep. to lead this because they understand it on a different level than somebody who's making a decision who has gone to school for whatever medicine. You know, right? right. They're, they're, they have a different perspective. You know, That's but, it. it's, but it's but it's important for the co- cohesion of all those different right. um, um, inputs. No, that's interesting because it it's such a it's such a gigantic issue, obviously, and multifaceted and all that, and it 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 comes we can anal- we can analyze it on different levels too. So it's like, of course, then you need all sorts of levels of input to have a solution. I find it yeah. so fascinating what you're talking about is being our our drug laws is being or our reaction to it is being like reactionary. And also like prescriptive, like we're just, we're telling you, we in charge are telling you, the user, what your problem is. Yeah. And how to, how to solve it. Right. And it also strikes me that like, and I've kind of came to this realization with systemic oppression where it's like, whatever you think about it, it's so goddamn big and it's probably never going to go away. Really? Like, obviously. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's especially given that there is a strong hereditary factor mm. to substance use. And so, like, sure. even if we solved it today somehow, there <laughs> is still going to be, right? Like, my children may experience some level of that. Their mm-hmm. children may. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to go on for generations. But I also just don't think it's, it's one, it's necessary. I think that the bigger social issues are what we need to solve as a preventative. Ah, sure. Because those we yeah. could solve because they're somewhat organizational. But uh, yes. the tendency to be racist or to create in-group out-group bias the tendency to use substances are like fundamentally human problems that unless we evolve beyond them i don't think there's so then i guess when you're talking about harm reduction that's maybe the goal right is like to the least amount of uh you know fallout from this as possible yeah yeah and it's it's one piece of many um that is going to you know reduce the harms and the costs, mm-hmm. you know, um, especially to our like healthcare system and also the costs of just like loss of productivity, like due to death. Right. Like, right. Someone dies at so many years that they could have been, you know, a part of society, you know, and on top of, sorry, on top of the, like the, the human level impact, mm-hmm. like that's so sad. And, and that was somebody's partner or yeah. friend or, or, you know, sibling, you know, it really does affect the way that our economy is able to thrive. Yeah. Because they can't, they can't participate anymore. Um, but anyways, kind of lost my train of thought there. That's okay. I, I find there, <clears throat> you bring up an interesting one that I've talked about before. Is like there's such a disconnect there where like, if if the economy is what dictates all policy and all, you know, if you really want to go that way, why then wouldn't we look at solutions to make as many people productive members of society as possible? It's like, right? Which makes me think that maybe the economics are second to some other sort of state control of, of the people but that's some wacky shit that i, that I haven't fully thought <laughs> that's out not yet too wacky. No, that's it's not, not too, too wacky. wacky like I, I read a book or a short essay called uh the anatomy of the state which is about how mm. it's you know we we as people are good at finding ways of warring against one another but really the real issue perhaps is how the state and those who govern us govern us and that that's the the power imbalance so yeah yeah it's this is complicated, but, you know, the people that are in leadership positions, the people that are making decisions and directing funding um, and addressing our issues on like a social um, and economic, you know, political level, those people are just people. <laughs> those people have been influenced by their their cultures that yes. they have yes. grown up in. They have been influenced by their surroundings, by their parents, by mm-hmm. by the, you know, generations views on on substance use on homelessness and and really i think one of the biggest um ongoing factors that influence these decisions is just is stigma it's stigma and the result is discrimination and so Mm. we have the evidence we have the evidence we have other we have the information and uh, to solve some, some and all of these issues, you know, and maybe, maybe I'm an optimist in that way sure. to say like, we can do this, but we can do better. We can absolutely do better. We are seeing other, other countries, other jurisdictions do better. And we are seeing the outcomes. Like it is not just a, you know, uh, a compassion based, like a feel good <laughs> change in policy 
Like it is an investment up front, mm-hmm. but it will save money. It will save lives, which is ultimately what, what this needs to do. <laughs> this is a health issue and people are dying left, right, and center, especially now, especially because of COVID mm-hmm. um, and the, you know, and well, the dual public health emergencies of, of COVID and the opioid crisis. And, you know, Alberta was hit really hard. So, so was BC, mm-hmm. right? Yep. But yeah, these are, these are big issues, but right. yeah, discrimination is, is going to um, have a major impact. And I realized, you know, what I was saying earlier was, harm reduction, right? As a, as a potential solution, but it's, mm-hmm. it's one piece of many and mm-hmm. harm reduction. We just have so much evidence now that it is, it is not only a compassionate kind way um, to interact with people who use drugs. It's mm-hmm. non judgmental. It's, mm-hmm. it's supportive, right? It's person forward. It's human centered, mm-hmm. right? But it also makes sense in the, in, in the way that it, reduces harms and reduces our costs to the criminal justice system, our healthcare system. Right. Right. So why are we, you know, some provinces or some places are just going backwards. Like, and once again, we've talked about this, but the idea that Jason Kenney can shut down harm reduction services in this, in this day Mm -hmm. is horrifying. You know, the, the, complete lack of compassion and the intense ego that is associated with making that decision, despite all of the evidence that says, no, 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 Mm -hmm. this is not, this is going to kill people. It Mm -hmm. is a death sentence. You know, to, to do that is, is, it's beyond me. Well, I think it, it begs some discussion. Although we found out this week that Jason Kenny likes Jameson Irish whiskey. I don't know if you, you see that picture. Of them. No, I did not, oh, but I, I'm sure there's a lot of memes online oh, God. right now. So anyway, it was just some picture of, of him and some of his cabinet ministers dining together on a rooftop patio. And I guess the, the and there's this big, you know, bottle of whiskey out on the table. <laughs> but they're not, I mean, whatever. It's like people are raging because they weren't socially distancing or whatever. It's like, did you ever for one minute think that any of these rules they made ever applied to them? Yeah. You know, like you're yeah. surprised by this, but this is getting away from the point i was going to make he may be a complete and total gargoyle like he may be devoid of of uh sympathy but then it it really makes me wonder you've heard of hanlon's razor which is the idea that don't attribute to malice what you can explain away with stupidity like is there what do you have a sense of why policy has been made like i asked this before but like yeah maybe maybe we put too much uh prestige on the position of power where it's like you we expect you to have the solution well you're just an idiot yeah. like me yeah like yeah like, like many of you many people you know and I, I think that <laughs> part, i think part of it is just um you know the political courage that it takes to do something that is is a little outside the norm right, right. or what is popular right is it, it is it, it takes a lot of it and And I think that we talked about this before, but I think that these different theories of why people use drugs or who they are as a person, Mm -hmm. um, I think that that is going to influence, you know, the stigma, the discrimination, Mm -hmm. and that is going to continue to impact how how they make decisions. And I I really don't understand the, the idea of having 
experts, you know, in these fields, if you're, if a person is not going to refer to the work that they are doing, (laughs) you know, like we, how can you ignore the evidence? Um, That's what's really shocking to me Mm -hmm. is, and that's what I meant by the ego is that like, you know, better than the public health experts that are telling you that this would be a solution. Right. Um, Yeah. So I think that there's an appeal to popular popular opinion. I think, mm -hmm. yeah, I think you nailed it right there. It's, you always hear about like the voter base or whatever. It's like, he knows who's going to keep him in power. So he has to appeal to them. And quite often we're talking about conservative politics. That base is very much, uh, individualist, quite often pretty, uh, biased, you know, uh, it's easy. It's easy to have a criminalized, marginalized group of others that, well, we got to keep them away from us. And, yeah. You know, yeah. so it's, um, it's those conservative, um, that conservative ideology, right. Mm-hmm. Um, that is just, it's having such a catastrophic impact on, on people and uh, on groups. It and, seems to be. Sorry. It seems to be because it, it seems like it cuts people out, right? Like it's, it's very by, yeah. by its nature. It's, I find it so fascinating how those different political ideologies have their roots in the psychological traits. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting too, like if we're talking about um, the different risk and protective factors associated with substance use, Mm -hmm. um, having that like sense of connectedness Mm -hmm. is a protective factor. So to be socially excluded and continuously socially excluded it has a serious impact on a person and the group. And, you know, it's, I think it it speaks to um, the, the reductionist thinking that kind of goes along with, with substance use sometimes and not considering all of those different determinants of health Mm. that um, we need to address to be able to move forward and, and save lives really. Right on. Well, I've been raging about that on the show is uh ideology uh it doesn't i mean and so it's interesting in this framework then because it just it doesn't serve enough people it it just serves one sort of person and it makes everybody else unhuman in some ways to just put you to put this box around you and say we need to just kind of shuffle you over here do you do you do you feel like the current state of like uh whatever we're doing for substance issues substance use issues is sort of just uh token in some way it's like well or or are you seeing an improvement in overall in the trends of of how we're maybe being a bit more human with these people people that use yeah yeah for sure and and you can you can see it to a certain degree in in the word the wording um Mm. in broad level policy um we can see how some of these things are shifting. Like I have seen in my time working with people with substance use that harm reduction is becoming the norm. Mm-hmm. It is, it is okay. becoming much more accepted. Mm-hmm. There are still people that, you know, have all of these different, you know, they're holding on to these myths of harm reduction and they've all been disproven, you know? And so we're seeing people, really um, like the people that are are providing services Mm -hmm. 
to people who use substances. They, I feel like I'm seeing more of the conversation around like, yeah, you know, it has the individualized, it has the practical response. We need to be non-judgmental. We need to support them where they're at. Yes. And, you know, they're going to engage in these things anyway. So how do we make sure that they don't die? How do we make sure that they don't get HIV? How do we make sure? Um, and so we're seeing our, our communities, like our, our local um, government, responding to a certain degree by putting out like um, a needle disposal, um, okay. uh, you know, initiatives or like a little... Um, uh, needle disposal, what are they called? Vessels um, in, in our city. And also um, providing access to uh, overdose prevention sites or safe consumption sites. Mm. You know, the fact that we have Insight in Vancouver, what a like major achievement where somebody can go and, and safely inject with a clean needle, mm. with something that, and, and also in, in a safe environment and have access to to professionals that can connect them to uh, treatment services if they want it, if they're ready for it. Right. Like you can't force somebody into treatment. It's it's not right. practical. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, and we don't also, we don't have a lot of evidence that supports that forced or mandated treatment works. <laughs> so, you know, like why would we, why would we try to incorporate that into mm-hmm. our, um, our criminal justice system and our child protection system? Mm. Yeah. Cool. So I, I have seen some shifts. Um, okay. It's not happening fast enough because, you know, over 1,700 people died in BC um, last year from, uh, you know, overdoses. Now, that's, like, that's unacceptable at this point. Well, um, it is. It is now. So that's interesting to think that someone who's addicted to some substance could go somewhere. Because isn't that just, if, if you need the substance use, and if we could just make that a safe thing, and are they providing the substance of insight or you have to bring your own dope? I can't remember the answer to that question. I'm pretty sure you have to, you bring your own. Um, when it was, when there was that heroin assisted treatment mm-hmm. pilot program, um, they were providing like pure medical grade heroin. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to just um, a heroin, heroin derivative. Okay. You know, it, or, right. um, or yeah, the good so like methadone, the good shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. to speak. And yeah. so, and and so, just in and of that, uh, sorry, in and of itself, like that's that's a that's a harm reduction measure, right? Right. Um, and regardless of whether they provided it to them or not, right? That um, that eliminates the other harms of like using alone. Right. right? Somebody is more likely to overdose if they're using alone. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sometimes they're using water from puddles in an alleyway to inject or use their drugs. And so like, you know, there's, there's, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's bigger than just overdose, you know, it's, it's the, it's the deaths associated and the pain and the harms associated with withdrawal if they can't get that. It's the, um, it's the uh, infectious diseases related to sharing needles or using, you know, dirty needles, um, you know, HIV, hep C, you know. Yeah, I, and it seems like that if you could just give them a safe supply and a safe place to do it, it would eliminate so much of the right, like the problem. Like I, I saw some guy behind the the arena here in Edmonton shooting up, and it was like broad daylight, and it just struck me like, what's this guy mm-hmm. going to like now fall backwards, nodding off, and what hit his head, get run over? Like, would that? But I guess one thing that came to mind too is like, is there any real reason why someone who's using wouldn't want this kind of help? Like, is there a 
is there a fuck you? I just want to shoot up with a dirty needle. Or is it like most people would just like, if I didn't even have to do this at all, I'd be happy. Like, yeah, I, and if you just, if you think in it, think of it in a way that you can choose to be homeless if you chose, right? Right. To have, to be homeless, to be at risk of violence, to experience trauma, to, um, get HIV or, or AIDS, um, hep C, uh, has, you know, getting a septic wound and dying from the, you know, a secondary infection, or, you know, you could have housing, right. access to clean and safe supplies. And when you are ready and when you feel stable enough, you know, based on all of these other wraparound supports that the, you know, we could provide to you mm-hmm. when you're ready, then access treatment. Right. But it's, it's not this linear process either, you know, like mm. it's, it's so much bigger than that. Um, you know, it does take more than one often. It takes more than one um, interaction with, with uh, you know, recovery or treatment services sure. to, to get to that point. And, and huh. even though abstinence is on, you know, the spectrum of harm reduction services, mm-hmm. you know, the longer that a person goes um, abstaining from drugs, the more likely they are to overdose, you know, soon after. And so like abstinence-based programming is a little scary to me. Okay. Um, because, you know, why not just provide, like wean them off as needed, as desired. Mm. And so that when they go back out into the world, right, if they are in a residential treatment center, they aren't at risk of, you know, overdosing because their tolerance has declined so much, right? Or, and your, and your environment affects your tolerance as well. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate because there seems to be in the West or in the first world, a lack of, a lack of sympathy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I do think it comes from not knowing, you know, I don't think that people understand the, the connection between trauma, um, what they call those, those adverse childhood experiences right. and how they have such a major impact on, on, uh, a person's life and the trajectory that they follow, right? Like this collection of factors that, you know, cover like emotional, physical, yeah. sexual abuse and like, and generally like household dysfunction, mm-hmm. you know, like without understanding that this starts in childhood, like this starts, yes. um, so young and nobody's choosing to be in this position. Right. Nobody's choosing that. And when somebody says, well, they're making the choice to use drugs. When somebody experiences trauma, um, their brain changes. It is, it is not as simple as, you know, you experience trauma and that's how your coping is with drugs. And eventually the drugs are so addictive that you just become addicted to drugs. It's somebody's circumstances and the way that they have been, not raised, but the way that they've experienced trauma that is going to impact their impulse control, their decision-making on a anatomical, physiological level. Mm -hmm. And and then also, you know, just like the dopamine response, like maybe somebody had a lower um, dopamine level before having drugs. So to take drugs makes them feel normal. And then also reducing the like pain and trauma. uh, you know, intrusive thoughts of trauma, right? Like it's so much more complicated than that, than just someone makes a choice to be there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that if people understood that and understand the different theories of, 
of substance use and how criminalization came about, I would hope that they would be more compassionate. You would sure hope so. That's interesting. They say it starts in childhood. And it's like, it's like we were saying before, like, uh, all these adverse childhood, like you'd be hard pressed to find someone that didn't have something happen to them in their life that they're not somehow dealing with down the road. Right. Yeah. So yeah. In my, in my personal experience right. working with people and, and I've had to develop, you know, close relationships with people in a very short period of time. Sure. The things that they have told me are, it's bone chilling. It mm. is mm. so sad you know, that, and this is why burnout is so high in those, in those, in those industries, right? Because sure. people take on that vicarious trauma. Mm. It is really hard to sit with all of the, the stories that I have learned. Um, but yes, all of the people that I've worked with have experienced something in their child or childhood or right. their, uh, during youth. Right. Now, can you speak at all? I think maybe you told me not so much, but do behavioral addiction like is that do you deal with that at all at that institute or like just you know there's there are so many people um so many different um, experts and scientists and professors that Mm. are connected to uh, the university of victoria that work in the organization that you know my uh my knowledge of what is actually happening on an organizational level is 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 not as good as it could be you know there's people seem to be kind of working in silos to a certain degree. And, you know, COVID has made it difficult. Like I started my job in uh, January, 2020. So I had three months to get to know, you know, the people I was working with. And then after that, we were all sent home. And so I, there may be um, some research around behavioral addiction. Mm -hmm. So like the internet, gaming, uh, Mm. shopping, uh, pornography, right. Eating, um, sex, uh, that that's happening, but I'm, I'm not really privy to it. I don't okay. know. And, and that, those are really, that that's a new phenomenon, right? Like this is newer information. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I, well, if you ever, if you know somebody or if there's someone I could look into, I would love to talk about that. Like I find that so fascinating, uh, like pornography addiction or like device, mm-hmm. like cell phone addiction. That's a thing. Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. It is. That is alive and well. It is really interesting to see how um, we're seeing more and more of this and that, you know, that compulsion, right? Mm. To put away your phone, that compulsion, oh. or sorry, the compulsion to use your phone and the difficulty of putting away your phone. Right. Um, yeah. It's a, uh, it's, it's interesting. And supposedly, you know, and I, I don't know a lot about behavioral um, addictions, okay. but supposedly it's, it involves really similar pathways in, in the brain and it, it involves um, similar risk and protective factors. And mm. so it, it, it's all to a certain degree lumped under this, this umbrella of um, uh, the same like risk and protective factors and trauma and mm. um, yeah, childhood experiences. I imagine it would be, I think it'd be cool to think about, well, isn't, and this is going to sound uneducated, isn't, isn't isn't all behavioral wouldn't a behavioral addiction be still in some ways a substance addiction because you're addicted to whatever it is that gets is it dopamine or it gets that flowing in your brain where you know what i mean like it's uh yeah i hear what you're saying and endogenous i endogenous yeah i hear what you're saying like if you would still get the same response right, right? then and then your you know your uh, like survival mechanisms kind of become hijacked right by that like yes. dopamine drive right um 
I don't know the answer to that question. And it's, and once again, it's because that is new to me, you know, like I, it was alive and it was part of the conversations I was having back in, you know, that was 2012 that I did that internship. Okay. Um, and there was, um, a couple people that I worked with that had pornography addictions. Mm. Um, but I wasn't involved in, in that, in the, the goals related to those substances or sorry, those behaviors. Interesting. So, okay. yeah, that's a, a, a conversation for a different day or a different time. Sure. No problem. A different person. A different person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Uh, so, I've talked to some people who, like, I talked to a journalist who does, she did a lot of coverage of some of those, um, there was those in central Alberta last fall, there was like those rallies for, you know, black lives matter. And then they were kind of these white, uh, conservative gentlemen came from the, their caves and started, you know, there was that, I don't know if any of this, maybe you didn't catch any of this, but what we were seeing was basically a real boom of like these activist types, these, these very progressive liberal activist types rallying for black lives matter and all that. And then we had these, these white, often rural, uh, conservative guys coming and there was this clash there. And I, I talked to a journalist who covered it and I talked to a camera man that covered it with her and they both struck me as very sympathetic, liberal people. And I just wonder, do you see in yourself, in your personality, um, you want to help, you want to, you're, you're sticking up for the, the oppressed, the marginalized, the, those that can't help themselves is what I wanted to do with that question was ask, is there a personality? Is there a psychological, is there a higher order reason that you got into this line of work? So part of it was my own personal experience with the, the difficulty, the stigma, the discrimination and, and the pain, right. That was associated with my own like mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that there was, I think that is a combination of that personal experience and then also certain traits of mine and, and skills that were more likely to develop because of those traits, those uh, traits. Mm. So okay. I've always been a very curious person. I'm, I, I ask a lot of questions. I, I love research. I've been doing research in one way or another since the beginning of undergrad, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was 2008, you know? And so that led me to, you know, being involved sure. in, in, um, in research in some way or another in the personal experience with mental health and, and substance use led me to be more inclined to study psychology. Okay. Um, and psychology led me right to these interactions with people and I got to know them as people. I I didn't see them as, um, a statistic or I didn't see them as their diagnosis. I, I got to know them in a way that, um, while I was already quite naturally empathic and compassionate and Mm -hmm. caring, Mm -hmm. I think that all it did was, you know, intensify those feelings because I, I, I formed relationships with them. Sure. Um, and I think that the combination of those, those factors and then the experience okay. working with people over the years, you know, and seeing all these different intersections makes it so easy for me to just say like, of course, it's not as simple as that, you know, mm-hmm. of course, you know, 
what else is going on for that person that puts them at risk? What is it that happened to them as a child that, that puts them in a position where they were more vulnerable to this? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that it was, it was there were some personality traits cool. that, that affected my like trajectory. It makes me feel like if there could be a little bit more of that curiosity and, and willingness to see people as human, that that might help in all aspects of this problem. But it also seems like maybe that's just not, maybe we're just like, at some point we have to just say the human being is not always equipped to construct anything more than it already has. You know what I mean? Like these big Mm. solutions aren't maybe ever going to be on the horizon because we're sort of limited by our hardware. Like some of us are more compassionate. Some of us are willing to help, but other people would rather live in a cave and say, white lives matter. And I, I don't care if you're addicted to drugs. I'm not addicted to drugs. So it doesn't matter to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It kind of goes back to that, that idea of, you know, um, if I'm okay, do I mean, if I'm doing okay, mm-hmm. then, you know, kind of fuck everybody else as right. opposed to like, I'm doing the way that, you know, I'm doing however I'm doing, you know, I think I'm doing well. I feel like I'm in a place where, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the outside, especially, right? Like I have certain things that I'm, I feel successful. Sure. Um, but I don't feel like I can move through the world in a way that makes me feel like joy or just, mm. just obtaining being content. If I see suffering, if mm. I know that other people are suffering mm. and that is was the major driver for going into public health. It was a major driver why that I've always been in the um, or for being always in the health and social services and working with people who are marginalized and right. vulnerable and have experienced so much discrimination, right? But it's that collective idea that like yep. we as a whole need to be okay mm-hmm. and we there are things that we could do differently, you know, our leadership. Um, the decision makers can do things differently mm-hmm. to enforce, you know, uh, that that sure. collective health and and the drive towards it and convincing people, you know, you know, through education, through experiences, through through um, uh, there's this there's this great program that's happening right now on on Vancouver Island where. Um, people are walking through a town and have a headset on and are experience or listening to the stories of people who are homeless That's cool. and they're getting this firsthand account, right. Of, of what it was like. And so to have that connection to yeah. somebody, I think really impacts the way that you look at homelessness, substance use, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and it makes you understand that, our society would be so much better if, if we just took care of each other, everyone. Yeah. That is very cool. What you're talking yeah. about, this interactive exhibit kind of thing. Yeah. It's a, it was a, there's a doctoral student in Nanaimo. I'm pretty sure who's doing this. Okay. Like I'll send you more information if you're interested, but uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a brilliant idea. It's mm-hmm. brilliant. Well, because it makes me think that all these, all these problems exist on so many levels of analysis, but they also fundamentally can only be understood on the personal level, right? Like what you're saying about that compassion, I think that maybe I lack 
a certain degree of that, but I do feel like not, not that I lack the compassion, but I lack the belief that I could really impact any major change. But mm. if I at least, and maybe this podcast is an attempt at that, where it's like, I have, like, like you say, there's a certain degree of success here where at least I've sort of wrangled the demons that I have and I can go forward into the world without making too much of a mess. But mm. I can, maybe then I can have one productive conversation with one person per week. And maybe, maybe yeah. I guess to me, I, I'm really talking about a grassroots. That's my philosophy that, absolutely. you know, like just start with one. Yeah. And I think, you know, I tend to take on, you know, the, the problems of the world, the problems in my, you know, sure. local neighborhood, my city, you know, obviously, you know, substance use on a Canadian level, you know, like I take this on and I, I do feel limited in the way that I can impact. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, policy or just, or interactions. Yeah. With, with, um, people who use drugs and service providers, you know, um, but somebody once told me that, you know, you do what you can within your sphere of influence. Mm. And I've been able to internalize that and, and it can be as simple as having a positive interaction with somebody who is struggling on the street. Yes. And, literally just making eye contact and smiling, mm. you know, something so minimal because they are treated so poorly and people just are blind to them or ignore them or treat them like shit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something as simple as that. And so if it's, if it's as minimal as that, mm-hmm. then I can feel good in that moment or I can feel sure. good with my day. If it's buying, you know, some food for somebody who needed it, even mm. if it is giving money to them, right? Like to get what they need to feel good enough, you know, that day. Um, or it's having a conversation with someone where they feel heard and valued and understood and they have safety in that moment where they're not feeling judged, hmm. you know, and they feel included socially in this interaction, right? That's all I can do, you know, right. and that, that's it. You know, I, I, I research this for a living and I, and I hope that it does something but I have no control over that. But I, what I have control over is my day-to-day interactions with people who suffer and the way that I work with people who have been historically marginalized and oppressed and underserved. Okay. That's yeah. really interesting that you, cause I am waiting for that moment when I can meet someone who's homeless or quite down and out and I can essentially get them on this podcast. But you, it's so interesting because I went down if you're familiar with Boyle street community center in Edmonton, mm-hmm. right behind the arena, I went down yeah. there one night I was shooting for city news and we were, me and the reporter went down trying to get some answers about something that had happened. And mm-hmm. you just got the sense, like some of them just did not want to even talk to you or look at you. And they were like, they were suspicious of you, I think ultimately, but there mm-hmm. was, that this, makes sense. right. It's like, what do you want? But, yeah. but also it's like the few women it was, and it was women that, that really talked to us. Save for the one woman that, that started talking about like wizards and elves. That was a different thing. But mm-hmm. two of the women that talked to us, you could tell they just wanted to talk to you. And like they, they, they became interested about what it was we were after here. And I just, yeah. man, I, I think, and I'm guilty of it. Like I look at those people and I, I get a little bit like even walking back there some nights. It's like, uh, and you know, there is some inherent danger there with some of those folks, but also some. So minimal. So minimal to someone right? like you. Oh, yeah, yeah someone, someone to somebody outside of their uh, outside of their circle. Sure, they're yes. not going to take a run at me, most likely for sure. Most likely, yeah. But 
man, it just made me think, God, if I could just have that opportunity to sit one-on-one with one of those people, and maybe I would have to go through the, through the community support to make that happen. But I think there's so much that could be gleaned from talking to someone like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It humanizes, um, many, many issues that, uh, we we really are disconnected from, Mm -hmm. uh, from a young age. You know, most of the people I, I know have never talked to somebody who's been homeless, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I have worked in that. And so for so many years, people have never talked to people who are, you know, in gangs or, right have been our sex workers, you know, to, to supply, you know, a drug habit or people who are just really, you know, addicted to heroin. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's amazing how, you know, we're, we're so sheltered, Mm -hmm. um, from that life. Um, and it does to a certain degree, um, lead to the stigma being even more intense or reinforced at least, you know, the, the stereotypes that we have and, it's shaped so much by our media and, you know, the yep. people surrounding us. And yeah, I do think that humanizing it would make, would make a difference. Right. Yeah. But I wonder if that's again, not some inbuilt problem in the human mind. Like it's much easier for me to, un- much easier for someone to understand those people as being X, Y, Z, homeless, drug addicted, <laughs> morally weak and inferior to me. Whereas, because it would be almost impossible to see every person for what they were, I think. There's a reason that we that we build boxes and make groups. Mm-hmm. I also I also think that if if you see it as a complex problem um, and you feel that you know mm-hmm. the the intensity of um, the the sadness for these people and right. and the compassion right then I think that those feelings kind of like prompt some people at least. Um, do something it makes you have to do something right and so if that means learning more about it so that you're more informed when it comes to voting you know for within our like local um, or any of our levels of elections right i think it, it prompts us to do something and that is and also to to use our critical thinking skills to learn right. those things because you know the more that i learn in in this world the less I know, <laughs> like, that's how I feel. I feel like there's, there's so much to know. And, and so it, it kind of blows my mind when somebody has such a strong opinion on, on these topics. And I, my guess is they've never opened a research article, you know, about uh. the topic on that, on that thing that they feel so passionate about. My guess is they've never interacted with somebody so that they have that human experience. Right. My guess is they have never taken the time further than, you know, a few Google searches, which are just so flawed, you know, right. take the time to, you know, look to the, the experts in these fields and, and to learn, hmm. um, you know, and on that note, I, like I do want to make it known that there are some great resources, you know, and um, the Canadian center on, on substance use and addiction um, has puts out incredible research Okay. Um, the, the, the Institute that I work with, the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research through UVic, mm-hmm. um, the BC Center for Disease Control. Um, you know, I, I've seen some from the states, uh, uh, I think it was called the Drug Policy Association and the National Institute on, on Drug Abuse. Okay. Um, and I, I don't agree with the term drug abuse, but it, it does 
pump out some some interesting information hmm. at least to start the conversation or start the thinking right you know, about these about these topics right oh that was great what you said there about uh if if you just if you accepted that there was a problem there then you'd have to do something about it whereas it's it's pretty easy to just paint over well it's not my problem yeah. but really again yeah. it, do you think that maybe is it in canada or in the west in general there's less of that collectivist like are there i guess maybe what i'd ask is there places like you mentioned was it portugal mm-hmm. but now i guess the state of oregon too completely decriminalized everything but yeah yeah is, you're is, saying is there a lack of that in the west of that idea that lifting up all people would lift up all people i don't think so because you know and based on something as simple as i've lived in alberta and mm. i've lived in bc mm. Living, you know, between Edmonton and the, actually, I lived in a very small town in, in Alberta as well at some point. Where was that? I lived in Pinoca, oh, Pinoca, BC, um, Alberta. Yep. Yeah. Um, Did you go to the? That road? was during that that internship program. Right. That was, uh, right. That was an experience. Oh, um, I bet. Coming from urban Edmonton, right? Sure. Um, but having lived in Edmonton and having lived in, in Victoria now, I see such a major difference in uh, the opinions um, surrounding substance use and harm reduction. Okay. Um, but I really think that it just depends on the government of, of the time. Mm. I think that, you know, the conversation is more prominent when you have a government that is more compassionate and cares mm. more about the collective. Um, and, you know, they're always demonized <laughs> of, of uh, uh, saying that they, saying that they don't care about the economy, but that's absolutely not true, right? To, you sure. know, whereas the government, like the conservative government's often saying like, oh, well, we care about, you know, the economy. That's our like strength is money. Um, we're going to make sure you have more money in your pocket and less taxes. But what we all need to do is pay more taxes so that our social services or redirect, not pay more taxes, sure. redirect, yes. right? Yeah. Our taxes, our tax money to, to feed into these preventative health-based um, social determinants of health um, settings. That economic thing is such a crock of shit. Like they just use oh it, like they just use it as what you're saying. Well, I, maybe you didn't say it, but you put that as number one and everyone, I mean, everybody wants to hear I'm going to have more money. Yes. Nobody wants to hear we're going to actually start putting money towards people who are drug addicted because then they don't follow. Is there a, is there a lack maybe then of a strong voice on the left that would say that would follow that thought through for us? I don't think there's a lack of that. You know, I, I think that those people exist. Mm -hmm. I think that it is, man, you know, I I wish I had more of a political background. You know, I only have my personal experience with this, but you know, I think it's really difficult for, for the left leaning, um, government bodies to to remain in power because they're very quick to be um, dismissed and demonized um, when there are issues and they often inherit issues from past governments but yeah yeah I don't I don't know yeah that's true I, don't know about that. I have some thoughts but okay. I don't know if I want them publicly aired no, that's fair that's <laughs> fair well I would say too that we're, I mean here in Alberta we're watching a conservative government pretty much implode Mm-hmm. and really just lose support on all sides yeah it's, it's it's really sad to watch but it also you know the optimist in me hopes that 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 fuels some really significant change mm. um whether that's bringing in a new government you know 
um, or, uh, you know, having them have to commit, you know, forcing their hand to commit, you know, funding and budgetary, like, um, allotments to, um, social and outside the healthcare system, health, right. you know, systems. Right. Yeah. I want just yeah. to, to double back if you have a little bit of time still. Yeah, I got a little bit of time for sure. Sure. Okay. Just, yeah. uh, you mentioned it like the, this dual public health emergency of COVID. What, what was yeah. it that you were seeing, uh, at least where you're working, what did COVID do to the drug or substance abuse issues? Yeah. So our, um, so the opioid crisis was an ongoing issue, right? And it's yeah. been an ongoing issue, um, you know, since 2016. Mm-hmm. But when out here, when BC declared a public health emergency, uh, an emergency, you know, the province implemented, you know, things like social distancing, um, sure. self-isolation for those with symptoms. Mm. Um, and, you know, COVID compounded the harms and, and the challenges okay. of, of the opioid overdose emergency. And it's, it's because it increased the number of risks for people who use drugs and, and alcohol. So including risk of overdose. Mm-hmm. So not having the same access to the quality and the quantity and the frequency with which they can access those substances. Okay. Um, but also there were other harms related to this toxic illicit drug supply Hmm. because of the shutdown of borders and the lack of movement. Right. Um, and people were reverse restricted, you know, um, and then also it increased the risk of infection, the spread of infection among those with underlying health conditions. And Hmm. so, you know, if, if somebody is already experiencing so much discrimination and the, you know, the effects of stigma and they are less likely already to access services like health services, then and also if they're using uh, uh, drugs, uh, like if they're injecting drugs, mm-hmm. they're more at risk already of all these different health issues, right? Sure. And so, um, yeah, it was just just so many risks layered on each, on each other for people who were homeless, people who used drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the idea of, you know, people self-isolating, you know, in those communities is, is a problem. Like to, to try to implement that and try to enforce it is a problem because I I mentioned earlier, like to use alone is, is a risk, right? It is a major risk. Um, and so the idea, you know, harm reduction strategy is to use with somebody, you know, Mm -hmm. use with somebody, have a buddy. And that's how those apps kind of came about, right? That you have some kind of connection so that you're not alone. Um, they have other uses, but you know, I'm, I'm not sure how helpful they've been. Um, I don't, I don't know enough about them, but anyways. Um, and also when they had to self isolate, mm-hmm. um, a lot of these people are living in shelters. Right. Um, a lot of these people are accessing or living in, you know, some residential, um, setting, mm-hmm. uh, and require, you know, community to be well enough, you know, while they're still using, but then also there was that risk of withdrawal and of all of the, the substances Alcohol withdrawal is incre- like in- extremely dangerous. Hmm. You you can die like right. very quickly from alcohol withdrawal, and so hmm. and also you know the symptoms associated with uh, withdrawal um, for some of the other substances, which I would say like including 
uh, withdrawal from alcohol, like vomiting and diarrhea, like that can lead sure. to dehydration, heart right. failure. And so basically all of these risks increase for those people and the deaths that we were seeing associated with the toxic drug supply and, uh, and overdoses okay. were just skyrocketing. So we had, yeah, it was just over 1,700 deaths, 17, yeah, 1,723 deaths wow. in 2020. But by March, 2020, uh, 2021, oh no, sorry. In March, 2020, uh, by that point, we, we had 268 deaths. March, 2021, we had 498 deaths. So this was, this was in, incredible, the harms that we were seeing. Right. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, you know, men were disproportionately represented in those, those stats. If you were mm. a man, you were more likely to die. And so, um, yeah, I just, at the intersection of the dual public health emergencies, you know, the number of risks, risk for overdose harms, um, they were, they were just, uh, really intense and compounded for people who already face like social marginalization and the risks to withdrawal. And so hmm. the response out here was, um, you know, it, it didn't happen fast enough and never does, you know, right. and, and we're still seeing many deaths. Right. And, and Alberta has, was hit really hard too. In fact, our, right? um, it was BC, Alberta and Ontario hmm. uh, experienced the most significant harms um, in COVID. Right. And it's, it seems like COVID really just, in some ways, like the word compound is interesting, but also it seemed like it revealed existing issues and sort of, you know, made them that much worse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It, it really highlighted some, you know, the health inequities, things that could be avoided. There you go. Yeah. If, if there was, if there was more support and if those, maybe those preventative measures had already been implemented, right. The funding had already been there, mm -hmm. you know, but, uh, yeah, it's it's really disturbing. I, I worked with um, people who were um, people who use drugs who were organizing um, to support you know the the local issues of their communities okay. or people um, who use drugs, and just the grief and the loss you know that these groups were experiencing, like on top of all of the like physical harms and the ODs and the deaths, was just it's just catastrophic and. You know, the fact that they were able to organize and respond and support their communities in the way that they did, despite that grief and that loss and the deaths, right, in their communities right. is incredible. Everything that they have done is remarkable is these drug user organizations, mm -hmm. like the grassroots organizations right. to support people with drugs are in, they are an incredible network that um, is being like established here in BC. So, and, it, and is it with the philosophy of just, just that grassroots, like not trying to change policy, not trying to whatever, but just trying to like help people on a personal one-on, -one, you know what I mean? Like small changes yeah. getting right. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely bigger than just the individual. And so they definitely have like individual level, like okay. advocacy. And so they support people accessing health services, social services, but they also are trying to impact, you know, system change and, and also, you know, they have other goals like providing support, um, education, and then advocating for the rights of people with, with uh, substance use issues. Hmm. Yeah. And, and they're all people, um, you know, in this drug user organ, uh, organization, you know, the network, 
um, these are all people with either lived or living experience. Mm -hmm. And so they, they have, um, a different connection to, to the, the communities and, and the, the topic as a whole. Um, and they were instrumental in mm. the response, you know, of, of the dual public health emergencies here. Um, they are, we have a, a drug user group here called Solid. Okay. And Solid worked, well, if essentially the island, sorry, our island health authority essentially asked them to lead the response. They knew what they were doing. They are the experts. And so there has to be this collaborative model because clearly, you know, the stigma and discrimination is so alive and well that yep. they're not going to get the recognition they deserve yet, but they, it is starting, you know, or at least mm. some people are recognizing it, um, including the health authority. And so, you know, there, there's change that goes back to what you said earlier, right? Like there is some change that's happening. Okay. And I think that that is a reflection of it to a certain degree was their, their, their lead role in supporting um, the community response to the dual public health emergencies. Hmm. Right on. I appreciate you laying that out there. Cause I, I think that was one thing we wanted to touch on for sure. Cause yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, for um, bringing that up. Not a problem. Well, Sadell, thank you for your time. I think that was uh very informative for people and hopefully we, well, like I say, we're not affecting too much change on this show, but we're, uh, we're having the conversation just the same. So thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate the opportunity. I think that, you know, these conversations are so important, like especially around mental health and substance use. And right. I think the more that we're able to normalize it and yeah. the more we're able to have, you know, some level of conversation around it, I think that we can like work towards like ending, you know, stigma and discrimination, at least reducing it, you know, in our lifetime. Right. No, that might be the start is just see it yeah. as a problem without a, too much of a judgment. On yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Fingers crossed. All right. Thanks again. Mm -hmm. Thank you. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening to the North Bank Media Podcast. If you enjoy this conversation, please subscribe on YouTube and give us a like. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe as well and leave a five-star review. Mm -hmm.